You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Robert Schneider and welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to Routledge.com or clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 26, the 1975 production of A Chorus Line. And with us today is the author of that chapter, Ron Fassler. Ron is an author, playwright, director, actor, and theater critic. His acclaimed first book, Up in the Cheap Seats, a historical memoir of Broadway, tells the story of how from the age of 11, he saw 200 Broadway shows over a four-year span. This book was selected as one of Playbill's must-read theater books of 2017. His one-act plays, Half Glasses, and Having Words were chosen for the 2019 and 2020 William Inge Theater Festival in Independence, Kansas. Ron, I'm so happy that you are joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here wherever we are. That's <laughs> in, in, in Zoom podcast land for today. That's right. That's Ron, right. My, my first question for you is, what makes A Chorus Line a key musical? For the simple reason that there was no other show like it before it opened. It broke new ground in such dramatic fashion, and it did it with a sense of showmanship uh, that very few things that come out of nothing can still claim. So for example, when something is considered groundbreaking, it's usually something that uh, just makes everybody feel like they've never seen it before. Yes, Chorus Line had that. It was something they'd never seen before. And yet it was seeped in showbiz. Michael Bennett, who created it, the dances and the, and the direction, uh, was just a person who lived, ate, and breathed show business. And it's in every one of the musicals he ever directed and worked on. Um, it, and so Chorus Line has this great throwback to shows of old, and yet it's completely new. I mean, I'm sure you agree, but that's oh, the first thing that comes to mind for me. Absolutely. And the second question that we've been asking all of our uh, authors is why did you want to codify this show? Why did you want to tell the story of a chorus line? Well, for one thing, I was there. You know, I saw the original Broadway production with the cast when it was uh, as hot a ticket as Hamilton. And it was an especially moving evening in the theater for me because uh, I saw it with my parents, but not in the way that most people see a show with their parents, which is that the parents take the kid. No, I was the kid who took my <laughs> parents. Um, and that's the way it was ever since I was a little boy, because as you mentioned in my introduction, uh, that I did start going to the theater at age 11 by myself. And my parents never took me to the theater. That, that was actually my great aunt and my grandmother and my neighbor. My parents were too busy parenting all six kids oh, in my wow. family. And so they didn't have time to take one of us to a Broadway show. Um, I did take them to a Broadway show when I was about 14. Um, and that was a fun night as well. But by the time I saw Chorus Line, I was already uh, 18 years old. I was actually in my freshman year of college. But since I was going to purchase, which is 45 minutes from Broadway in Westchester, uh, 
my parents actually called me and said something like, uh, this uh, chorus line, uh, uh, you think you can get us some tickets? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I have a contact. I can do it. We'll go. And we got three tickets and uh, we, we saw chorus line. Uh, and of course, that show is a lot about kids and their parents. So, and I was a guy who wanted to be in show business. So <laughs> it resonated, uh, believe me. Um, and my parents, you know, forever, forever and a day thought it was the greatest thing they ever saw in their lives. What do you think is the universality about a show like A Chorus Line? Like you said, it's all about dancers. I'm assuming your parents were not in the performing arts. Oh, my God, no. My mom was just, you know, a, a homemaker and my dad was an accountant. Um, and that's the thing about Chorus Line. Everybody who saw it understood it's about people's dreams and passions and and how hard it is to achieve those dreams and passions. You know, dancers on Broadway were never in the spotlight, which was the main reason why Michael Bennett wanted to create a show to honor them. Uh, they were always in the background. They were the ensemble, they're the chorus, they're nameless. And he gave them identities, he gave them names, he put them front and center. And that, I guess, Anybody can relate to that. If you're an office worker, you feel like a bit of a drone. You know, if you work in a restaurant, you feel like you're just somebody who doesn't maybe have a name, you know, if you wear a name tag. Uh, so to suddenly have a spotlight thrust on you, I don't know. I think it, it goes towards a lot of people's hopes and dreams. I think that's one of the reasons why the show uh, speaks to so many people. Do you feel that choruses uh, or ensembles, I should say, in Broadway musicals after a chorus line tried to change that anonymity? Or did you feel like they still tried to stick with what a, chor what a chorus line was saying originally, which is they're supposed to be anonymous? Uh, no, I, I think that um, uh, the, when Chorus Line opened, which was 1975, you know, the, the musical was in a bad way uh, and uh, big splashy musicals were too expensive and people weren't going. And then Chorus Line revitalized uh, Broadway in, in a in a absolutely galvanizing fashion. And uh, the chapter that I wrote for the book does go into that in some fashion. But the thing is that choruses then became acting, singing, dancing choruses. Because after Chorus Line, I don't think people looked at the chorus as just a bunch of, you know, uh, bodies. I think they started to uh, find that the chorus could act. Like, I think there's a great story that uh, Robert Morse told me, the, the brilliant actor, uh, when he was doing How to Succeed. And he said something to Abe Burroughs, the writer-director, about, uh, you know, I really shouldn't say that line. Why don't you give it to, and he said, you know, Jimmy. And Burroughs went, I'm gonna give a line in the play to somebody in the chorus? So, you know, it was not done. So once Michael Bennett put everybody front and center like that, and also the fact that big musicals were also dying out so that <laughs> you couldn't have a singing chorus and a dancing chorus. You know, that used to be a thing. I don't know if any of your listeners or readers I, might know. But actually, in the old days of Broadway, those they were bisected. I was going to ask you, actually, if you could expand on that and tell us a little bit of the history of a chorus leading up to a chorus line. Sure. I mean, uh, 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 Sondheim calls them the uh, what does he call them? The uh, the the nameless village, the villagers, you know, the oh, happy villagers, happy That's villagers. Yes. Happy villagers, you know, because he does. He never liked that in shows where the chorus suddenly joins in. Um, and yes, that's what it was like. If you go back to something like Showboat, a massive chorus, but there was a singing chorus and a dancing chorus because when the dance numbers started, that's when the dancers went to work. And when they needed some big, great choral support, the singers went to work. But by the 50s, I think they started really integrating them. By the 60s, it really was kind of a thing of the past. When I started going to Broadway in the late 60s, the choruses were integrated. They were not singing and dancing choruses. If you look at the old playbills, you will literally see singers, dancers. They were split up in a group, uh, in, into two separate groups. Um, do so you, do you miss that when you see Broadway shows today? Well, I mean, there's nothing like when, uh, like on a, on a, on a whim, it's more than a whim. It's, it, you know, you have to have so much money to back it. You know, a show will have a large cast. You know, the, the one I remember most of all is Ragtime. Mm. I mean, you know, Garth Drabinsky was throwing so much money uh, and he had a, I think it was 45 people were in Ragtime, which, you know, there's no shows with 45 people in them anymore. I mean, think about it. It's half that. 
And when they sang that opening number and those harmonies hit, I mean, I, I was crying. I, I mean, really, because I, I, it brought me back to the old days. And also, you know, there's nothing more thrilling than hearing that kind of a sound. I mean, after all, it's why people still go to the opera, right? I mean, that's what they want to hear. But Broadway's priced itself almost, you know, out of existence in that kind of uh, endeavor. And speaking of the old days, uh, can you tell us a little bit, and I'm sure you've got some great anecdotes to go along with it, about how musicals tried out before a chorus line came in and revolutionized this game? Right, because chorus line invented the workshop and you could just stay in town in a tiny little space and no one would bother you. Don't forget that's before there was internet and spies and all that kind of stuff. No, what you did in the old days was you you took a show to Boston or New Haven, Philadelphia, Detroit. There were all these cities that welcomed the companies, had the proper hotels nearby the theaters and sometimes... Uh, subscription audiences, but mostly just people in Boston who loved to go see a show before it hit Broadway and could claim to all their friends that they saw, you know, company when it played here. Um, But uh, that became very expensive over time. And Chorus Line, by sort of rehearsing in New York, made people realize, well, I guess maybe we could do it. And it's, I mean, in a perfect world, you don't want to rehearse your play in New York and preview your play in New York. Um, I know that Harold Prince felt terribly about uh, even Sweeney Todd because it was such a massive set, they couldn't go out of town. And, you know, the Broadway gossipers were saying it was a bomb and a disaster. And of course we know it was a, you know, it was a critical smash, if not a commercial one. Uh, and then Merrily two years later was a nightmare scenario where they, they didn't take the show out of town. They previewed it in New York. It had a lot of troubles, troubles that in the old days could be ironed out in New Haven and Boston and Detroit. But no, no, they did it right in the city with everybody paying to see it and comment on it. And again, Merrily was 1981, you know, it's you know, 41 years ago. And yet still the gossip. I mean, I was here. I, I had friends in the show. I was I was at the very first preview of Mary Lou all along. And oh my God, I never heard that kind of talk at an intermission in my life. Um, and that would usually have been reserved for out of town where people are not as harsh as New York, you know, members of the community. We call it the Broadway community. We all love each other. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> a, it's a family. Fresh, it's, <laughs> yeah, and, but, but it's shark infested waters, right? Yes. Um, yeah, we've got to be careful for the sharks. What are some of the ad- advantages of doing a workshop? And then what are some of the advantages of doing a musical out of town? Well, I mean, there are certain shows that do out of town runs now, but they're mostly done at a regional theater as part of their subscription base. Um, Wicked, for example, was done in San Francisco as part of the uh, subscription base for the theater there. Um, But that was its out of town run. Um, And they're glad they did it. I saw it in San Francisco and it had a lot of problems and they really went to work. Uh, And certain shows close out of town, as I'm sure you know, Uh, there's just, uh, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. They can't do the work. They say they're going to close and they're going to come back. They most often don't. Uh, one of the great examples of a show that got killed out of town was uh, Twilight Tharp's Moving Out. I mean, people hated it. And she and her creative team read every review, listened to the audience, and they came back and gave New York a big hit. It's rare that that happens, but sometimes people are willing to do the work. You know, the worst thing is when you're out of town with a musical and uh, it gets terrible reviews and uh, you say, well, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> New York will be different. Yeah, It's usually not. It's usually uh, not. For listeners that might be unaware, how would you define exactly what occurs in a workshop for a new musical? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's trial and error. You know, you the writers have, have a full script when the show starts, usually, and the full score. But it, it becomes uh, immediately apparent that a certain number isn't working. And maybe they'll throw it away, or maybe they'll give it to another character with some rewriting. Uh, you know, uh, maybe they take it out and they end up putting it back in later because the three... I'll, I'll give you another example. Wicked. The uh, Fierro's opening number, that number was written four different times, I think. Four separate songs. 
just to introduce his character because they just couldn't find the right way in. Um, but the workshops in New York, even though they're smaller scale, I mean, you're not dealing with, uh, you know, really big, heavy sets and costumes. Um, the, the, all those moving parts are so difficult when you're out of town with a musical. You know the great line, I think it's attributed to Larry Gelbart uh, when he was out of town with a musical that was going really badly. And he said, uh, <laughs> you know, if Hitler really is still alive, I just hope he's out of town with a musical. <laughs> One of the things that comes up in the history of Chorus Line and its origin story, which we're going to talk about in a second, is who contributes what? And we just saw this recently with Hamilton, and I want to get your take on it. And you might have to wear many different hats in answering this particular question. The, one of the issues that uh, actors from Actors Equity had a couple of years ago was that actors who participate in workshops of new musicals, who suggest lines, who suggest bits of business, then when that show goes from a workshop to a full production, they will see their contributions on that stage, but they are not getting a royalty or a fee for that. There was a debate before COVID hit that actors that are participating in a workshop of a musical should be entitled to some sort of royalty when that show then moves to a full production. What are your thoughts on this? Because it's going to circle back to a chorus line. Many years ago, probably 40, there was an off-Broadway play called Medigliani about the, the painter. It was workshopped and then it was brought, uh, workshopped with Al Pacino, I think. And when they brought it off-Broadway, Pacino was no longer involved and it was Jeffrey DeMunn. But some actors from that original workshop were very upset when they saw it. And they were like, that's my contributions, exactly what you were describing, Rob. And it became a big, big case. And as I recall, it, it started a new rule about actors being compensated for workshops. And I think that's been over the years amended, adjusted, <laughs> adjusted for inflation, uh, right up until Hamilton, when those actors were all told that they were going to get a piece. And, and that show obviously, you know, was going to be a billion dollar enterprise uh, very quickly early on. Everybody knew it. And the actors started going, well, we need to talk about this. And it, it uh, the talks got heated, but as I understand it, everybody did finally get something. Uh, you know, they keep it under wraps, but they're being compensated as they should be. If you're in a workshop situation and for example, the writer cannot figure out what line should be said here and you know it in your head and you have a really great idea, do you volunteer it? and say, hey, I think I have an idea on how to solve your problem for which I will receive no compensation? Or do you keep it to yourself saying they have to figure it out? They're the ones getting paid for it. Gee, I, that's not the way my mind would work. Um, I feel sorry for a person actually who thinks, gee, I don't think I'm going to give that, <laughs> that idea because I mean, I got paid for it. Can you discuss for us, Ron, the origin story of a chorus line and how, because it feels like a Rashomon quality, of how this musical came to even be an idea. Michael Bennett always wanted to do something with dancers, uh, about dancers, for dancers. And he didn't quite know how that could become a musical. Uh, at the same time, he was trying to work that out in his head. Uh, two Broadway dancers with huge credits and, uh, and absolutely more than just acquaintances with, with Bennett were Michon Peacock and Tony Stevens. And they were thinking about doing something for dancers, but much more in a, uh, a, a, a way to bring them together so they could talk about the issues that they faced in, in, in terms of employment and unemployment and all those things. And it was Bennett's idea to then perhaps bring a whole group of dancers together for an evening and have like a marathon rap session. And when they all arrived at midnight, okay, because a lot of these dancers were in Broadway shows, uh, they showed up and Bennett had this big reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. Those are the days when you, you know, you had these big clunky machines. You couldn't just take out your phone and start recording. <clears throat> and they taped this entire 12 hour session. It ended at noon the next day. And it was group therapy. It was a chance for dancers to talk about their lives and their history, why they became dancers in the first place. Everything that Chorus Line is, is from that first evening of tapes. 
And even though it ended on a, on a promising note, Bennett still didn't know how it could be a show. He can't put dancers on stage talking about their lives. How, how could he do it? Uh, we all know how he eventually did it, but it took time and effort and energy. And uh, it, it actually got to an interesting place. And here we're back to this conversation about compensation. Uh, Bennett realized these tapes because there was another session shortly thereafter to try and repeat this whole thing. And some of those dancers were involved and new dancers were brought in. Bennett approached uh, Peacock and Stevens and said, uh, I think I need the tapes. I mean to say, if I'm gonna do something with these tapes, I'm create a show. So here's a dollar in legalese. I'm paying you a dollar each, they're my tapes. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> You're laughing, great, but... That's one of the greatest purchases ever made. <laughs> yeah, like it, it matches the uh, buying Manhattan Island, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, for 24 bucks. Um, and then uh, one of the dancers who took part uh, was Nicholas Dante. He's the one who told his incredible autobiographical story about uh, being a dancer and uh, in drag and his parents coming to see him. And that's the great Paul monologue that is a centerpiece of the chorus line. And Michael knew that uh, Nicholas really wanted to uh, write. So he gave him the assignment. See if there's a show here, start writing a book. Although he did say with a provisio, I will bring in a a seasoned librettist at some point. And that ended up being James Kirkwood, who was an actor, novelist, playwright, uh, and writer. And uh, they shared the Tony Award you know, when it won Best Book. But look, <laughs> it was everybody's stories. I mean, you know, some of the lines are verbatim from people's mouths when they spoke during that night, lifted off the tapes. Even some actors were not cast as the character that they really truly are. Their, their stories were given to somebody else. That's how bastardized the whole thing became, but that's art, right? Um, some people auditioned for the show to play themselves and didn't get the part. I know people listening to this must be, who aren't in show business must be like, how is that possible? Well, it's, it's possible. It, it it, it's possible. And it, like you said, it did happen. An unsung hero of a chorus line is Joseph Papp. Would you tell us a little bit about who Mr. Papp was and what he was trying to accomplish with working in the producing world for a chorus line? Joe Papp was uh, one of the most significant producers the theater's ever known. Um, he was uh, a guy with a passion for Shakespeare. Uh, he was a stage manager doing uh, shows uh, at CBS in the uh, mid-50s. And the late 50s, he wanted to bring Shakespeare to the masses for free. That was his idea. And uh, he got some permission. He got some seed money. He paid actors nothing. Some of these actors went on to become some of the greatest Tony Award winning actors you've ever known, uh, like Colleen Dewhurst and James Earl Jones. And um, he just set them out into the boroughs in, in roving uh, you know, buses. And they would stop in a park and do Shakespeare. And these stories are all extraordinary. Uh, but Pap ended up getting uh, uh, the money and the backing to create what is now known as the public theater. Uh, and while he was at the public theater, uh, he, he had a notion to do musicals. And in fact, the very first show he ever produced at the public theater was a musical. It wasn't Shakespeare. It was a musical called Hair. Yes, the, the great first rock musical was created at the public theater. When the creators thought, gee, maybe we have something here. We're gonna to move to Broadway. Are you interested, Joe? Joe Papp said, I don't think so. He regretted that because of course, Hare ran on Broadway for four or five years and was an international you know, uh, monetary and critical success. So he was always looking for another musical idea. And um, when Michael Bennett came to him and said, hey, you know, I've got this idea for a musical. He was like, soul, here's a, here's a space. It's a safe space, it's yours. We'll call it the Michael Bennett Dancer Project. Do whatever you want. And that is where Michael Bennett created Chorus Line. And when it you know, started looking like something that was going to be good, believe me, Joe Papp wasn't going to let that one go by. Yeah. And he did produce it on Broadway. And the money that Chorus Line was, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the piece of the pie that the public theater got for nurturing it, uh, kept the coffers of the public theater solvent for uh, at least 20 years. And Hamilton, of course, was workshop there as well. They have a piece of the pie. 
and Hamilton will keep the public theater running for generations. And thank God for that. Uh, and that's the power of a workshop. I mean, that's another thing we should talk about if we're talking about workshops. Yes, please. There's, look, the thing about show business, it's my favorite line of all time. You can't make a living, but you can make a killing. Uh, my dear friend, Winnie Holtzman wrote the book for Wicked. She worked on it for five years for no money. I mean, nobody was paying her. She was just working on it out of the love and the hope and the dream. It might one day get produced. And look what happened. Look what happened. A millionaire. Uh, well, <laughs> every time <laughs> I think about the money Winnie earns from Wicked, I just keep thinking that every dollar she makes, Stephen Schwartz gets two. Oh. Because, you know, the, the pie is split up between book, music, and lyrics. So Stephen oh. gets two-thirds of that pie. And if uh, you think about a pie like uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, he gets all three pieces of the pie. A few years ago, the New York Times ran an article um, saying how much the creatives on Wicked had made just from the Broadway run alone. Right. Each of them in the millions and millions range. So, you see, you see, couldn't, your, couldn't your happen to a nicer person, right? Like right. And your She's parents charitable. tell you you can't make money yeah. in this. Come well, on. <laughs> yeah. No. But that's you know, there's once in a, a generation. There's yes. what 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 has there been on Broadway in the last forty years? There's been Wicked, Lion King, the revival of Chicago, Hamilton. Those yeah. are the ones you know yeah. uh, that uh, are you know oh oh a little one called Phantom of the Opera. And then there's cats. There's a few. There's but a Chorus few. Line was was the first, you know, one that uh, that ran longer than any other. You know, uh, when a Chorus Line closed, it was the longest running musical on Broadway, and it was many years until uh, Cats caught up with it. I'm so curious. Were you were you present when they when they broke the record for a Chorus Line? I couldn't get a ticket. I wished I could have. Um, I do have a friend who went that night and she had never seen a chorus line. She said, <laughs> I had to have been the only one in the theater who had never seen it. Um, I wish we had room in our chapter to include this. Can you tell our listeners about how Michael Bennett celebrated chorus line becoming yeah. the longest running musical? Yeah, the night it became the longest running musical in history, uh, breaking the record of Greece. I know. Um, <laughs> uh, he wanted to do something special. And Joe Papp was like, whatever you want, Michael. They found the money. I mean, obviously, they'd all made so much money off the show and produced an extravaganza, a one night only, specially directed version of a chorus line that Michael Bennett put together specifically just for this one night. And what he did was he invited everybody who'd ever been in a chorus line on Broadway, on a tour internationally and figured out a way to showcase everybody all night long. He split the songs up so that the person who sang uh, Nothing, the great song that Priscilla Lopez introduced was sung by about six different people, one of them in Japanese. Uh, and the finale is what everybody uh, remembers because there is a little bit of footage that you can see if you go to YouTube and just type in chorus line, longest running performance. And he brought in, I think it's 350 dancers. Um, and they're all dressed in that great costume. You all know the top hat and the tails. And, and 350 people sang one. And I, I, it thrills me every time I watch it. I mean, and the showmanship involved. Uh, and, and Bennett just uh, put his stamp yet again on Chorus Line. He created another bigger, better Chorus Line. The tragedy for me is that he wasn't given the opportunity to make it into a movie. Um, he tried... Uh, I don't know if he really, truly tried. He was going through a lot of uh, troubles personally at that time in his life. He was uh, really doing too many drugs and he came out to Hollywood to talk about it. And uh, But I, I don't think he ever really worked on it. Um, and I know he could have done it. He, he had a filmic sense. If you ever saw the original Dreamgirls, the way he staged it, it was a movie. It was as fluid. It had swipes and dissolves and all those things you see in movies. Um, the fluidity of it. He could easily have directed the movie. Um, when, I was going to say, when you look at somebody like Bob Fosse, you can identify their choreographic style just by however the dancer is moving their body. Does Michael Bennett have a style? Not like Fosse did. Um, and Fosse owed a lot to Jack Cole, you know, who also had a style. Uh, I mean, Jerome Robbins didn't have a style. 
You know, I mean, he fit whatever the needs were. You know, if it was Gypsy, it was going to be 1920s dancing, you know. And if it was Fiddler on the Roof, he was going to go and look at every folk dance he possibly could. Um, <laughs> Michael Bennett wasn't like that. I think he really uh, loved uh, expression of movement in the style of, of what Broadway meant to him. You know, he was a, a little kid. You know, he never went to college. He was, I think, before he even left high school. He was cast uh, in a tour of West, an international tour of West Side Story. I don't think he was 18. I think he lied uh, to say he was 18 for the permission to go and do it. And then for our listeners who might not be aware, why was it that he didn't really do anything after A Chorus Line or Dreamgirls? Well, Ballroom was the show after Chorus Line, uh, which he he purposely did something very different from Chorus Line. And I actually attended the opening night of Ballroom. Oh, and wow. I did. I was, I, I had like the best orchestra seats you could imagine. I had Lauren Bacall sitting next to me. I mean, it was a crazy night. Um, and I thought I was watching one of the, the next great musicals. I mean, it was so entertaining. Uh, and then the next day I read the reviews and I, I couldn't believe the critics saw the same show. And I think they were just, if, if that had been directed by, by Michael Burns, you know, or Michael, you know, yeah. Johnson, they would have been all over themselves. What an innovative, wonderful show. But uh, it was Michael Bennett and they, they really, you know, were out to, how dare he, you know, have two successes in a row. I mean, it, it look, when Lynn Monroe comes back and does something after Hamilton, get ready. They'll, they'll all have their daggers out, you know? There'll sure. be people who, who don't want him to succeed. Um, and then Bennett, of course, did Dreamgirls, which was spectacular. And, and then he did another musical that was all set to go to Broadway, had an opening night, it had a theater called Scandal, uh, which was supposed to be outrageous and contained some of his most brilliant work. I know people who were in it and they've told me uh, a ton about how, how ingenious this show was going to be. But uh, he got sick and that's when he couldn't do anymore. Um, you know, his death at 44 is it is it it's 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 something we've never gotten over 44 yeah. i mean he could have still been directing into his 70s you know and not just him but nicholas dante and james yes. kirkwood also yeah and ed kleban died of a, of a cancer at a, at a yeah. much too young an age and, and marvin hamlish didn't really have a very long life it's a it's a terrible tragedy that they're all gone Ron, my last question for you about a chorus line is, do you think in the 21st century there is a place for this musical? Can we still tell the story of a chorus line and still have the same impact on audiences it did in 1975? No question. No question. Chorus line's timeless. I can't wait for another Broadway revival of chorus line. Um, I took my mother to the second one. The, the, I should say the first chorus line revival, uh, which was, uh, which was uh, really beautifully portrayed in a documentary I want to recommend to anybody listening uh, called uh, Every Little Step, right? Yes, Every Isn't Little Step. Called? Yeah. Fantastic documentary about a Chorus Lines revival. What was it, 12 years ago or so, Bob? Oh, Maybe. 2006, I think. Okay, so longer, yeah. 15 years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it recreates a Chorus Line in the sense that you're watching all the actors audition and you don't know who's going to be in it. So it, it has that same, uh, it's, it's kind of a brilliant concept. And it has amazing emotional highlights in it. Um, I recently rewatched it and I was a wreck. I just cried and cried and yeah. cried. I mean, Chorus Line has that effect on people, especially people who are in show business because yeah. you know, it does speak about what I did for love and all those, uh, all those things that are still true. Um, but Chorus Line's a perennial. The only thing is um, we're gonna look forward to the day when somebody will reinvent it and not do Michael Bennett's choreography. Um, uh, because that revival we're talking about from 15 years ago was directed by Bob Avian, who was the co-choreographer and Michael Bennett's closest associate for his entire career, who knew that show inside out and uh, really basically, you know, recreated the staging. So there was nothing innovative about the production. I so, know there have been other productions that have been innovative. Um, and I've seen some clips and it's, it's, it's really interesting to see different choreography. Um, but, you know, it's all in the, uh, the heirs to the estate. You know, they'll one day they'll find somebody who will have a concept and they'll bring it back and uh, it'll be a great fodder for conversation and hopefully big box office. Because I think everybody, I mean, you know, in a perfect universe, the chorus line is always playing on Broadway. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In addition to our interview with Ron Fassler today, we are also posting an interview with actress Donna McKenna. Who originated the role of Cassie in a chorus line? Uh, this interview was conducted on October 7th, 2019, and is part of the Behind the Curtain Broadway Living Legend podcast series. Please enjoy Donna's recollections of working with Michael Bennett on both Company and a Chorus Line. And so then, uh, Promises, Promises comes to an end, and then Company. How did you get involved with Company? Well, Company was the first show that I got without an audition and I loved it. <laughs> I went, this is how I'm, it's going to go. I, this uh, is it. But Hal Prince had me in his office and I was, and I thought I was reading for Hal Prince and I went and, and uh, he sat there, such a great uh, person and big producer and I was excited to meet him and, and nervous about reading wasn't my forte to read, do cold readings. But there I sat, and he was so nice and told me, and he showed me a set. He said, this is the set, Boris Aronson's magnificent set, and these are the, and the little people. And he showed me, and I went, this is making me more nervous. Right. I mean, can we read already, you know? And I said, well, where are my sides? And he goes, sides? Well, do you want to... You want the job? And I said, well, yeah, but... I, I, he goes, well, you got the job. I just wanted you to come in and and see the set. And and I what? went, wow, I know. Did someone recommend wow. you to? No, this is what... Well, no, I... He's He saw me in uh, the education of Hyman Kaplan yeah. years before and just remembered me. And then I guess he, you know, knew that... Uh, I'm trying to think... That you know that I had worked with Michael Bennett. Yeah, mm-hmm. Michael Bennett was choreographing it right. and co-directing it, and he—I was kind of maybe the enticement, mm-hmm. so that Michael could have a dance number. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, I think Michael was a little hesitant, and he didn't know if if he wanted to see his choreography on people that didn't dance. Yeah, I, that's my guess. We never talked about it, but I, I kind of figured it was that. And so then when I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. I love Michael Bennett's choreography. And that was it. Now, okay, so you start rehearsals for company. Did you know from the beginning, well, this is something special? Yeah. Yeah? Stephen Sondheim had it all done, the whole show. I mean, Barbara Berry, the first day we were sitting there around the table, the first read, we got our, the, the opening number. And uh, she opened it, and it was like 20 pages. It just, like, <laughs> fell across the floor, you know, the whole floor. And, uh, and she said, oh, boy, good luck with they're going to be doing this in 20 years from now. <laughs> in region, you know, in regional, you know, summer stock. Yeah, yes, and, yeah. of course, they did. Yes, and, you know, of course. Many times, and it's coming back. Yes, how exciting. It's great. How exciting. Yeah. Now, did the show change a lot from what was in rehearsal to what eventually ended up on stage? Not that much, but okay. yes, certain things. Like, um, you know, some of the set was changed a little bit. You know, the, the, the pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a scene that Kathy, my character, had that was much longer with Dean Jones mm-hmm. and was cut down, I mean, a, a few of the characters that more, um, not the main characters, but the, you know, like, but those, the girlfriends, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. they were kind of cut down. Um, and then my dance number at one point in time when we were out of town, was it Boston? Might've been. Hal uh, uh, took TikTok. me aside. Yeah. yeah and, and Pam Myers and said the two songs we have to cut 
from the show until we figure out what to do with them is another hundred people and TikTok. Oh, yeah, you know, she was her first yeah. show, and she was kind of like. But the way he did it, uh, I have to tell you, it made it okay. Not you know, it was like scary, but okay because I thought, oh God, I'm out of this show. I'm not mm-hmm. going to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But he 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 was so respectful. Uh, such a gentleman, and he took us uh, each back in the lobby, arm around, you know, just walking along and saying, look, it's not working where it is, so we're going to just take it out and rearrange it, and, you know. And he did, you know. And how did uh, the dance come to fruition? How was that collaboration with between you and Michael Bennett in terms of creating yeah, the TikTok well, number? It, yeah, well, it was, you know, Michael spoiled me because it, with Bob Avian also... Being in the room, it was like a more of a collaborative. Michael loved to work with people that way, and um, but he always had, you know, he he'd do something just co- kind of come from a uh, his psychology of, you know, he would just have an element of something that he was wanted to illustrate mm-hmm. or that had nothing to do with any writing. But it's like he said uh, the first day he came in. With company was little. He still was trying to break new ground, and he said, "Well, maybe we'll do this nude." And my, you know, I went from the Midwest. (laughs) My family, I'm not going to be dancing nude. (laughs) And he said, "We'll have a sheer, something sheer. It'll be, you know, beautiful, but you'll have, you know." And I remember sweating and flop sweat. And I went, "Um, Michael, I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's, you know, not going to work that way because you want to keep the mystery of this yeah. romanticism, you know, this sensual feeling. And if it's mm-hmm. too much, you know, I was talking yeah. myself, try, yeah. trying to <laughs> talk him out of this. And I think he went, okay, never mind. <laughs> yes. Um, but he was always trying to find, you know, something. And he said, you know, the, the tick-tock of a clock, when you're with someone in an intimate way and you're not really with them, and all you hear is the tick-tock of the clock. Mm. And I went, he said, you know how that feeling when you, after you've made love? And, you, and I go, no, I, d- I didn't say I didn't, but I had no idea what he was yeah. talking about. <laughs> I went, oh, yes, that tick-tock <laughs> of the course, clock. Of course, yes. Um, but of course, I, you know, it's like I do things and then you grow into it and you figure yeah. it out. Yes. Did you do a company in London? Did you go to London with it? Yes. And that was Hal Prince. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hal Prince, uh, that was historic in a way because no American complete company, apart from uh, April, the character April, mm-hmm. Julia McKenzie did that. Susan Browning stayed. Um, but the whole company went um, to London at Her Majesty's Theatre. That, that was a first. Yeah. And I remember we got off the plane and there were pictures and, you know, I was getting off and it was just like, uh, it was just a great thing. We had to leave after three months, and right. that's when Elaine Stritch stayed on, lived at the Savoy, right, and did right. all those yes, right. did all those wonderful um, TV shows. Yes, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. She's right. she was so yeah. marvelous. How does a chorus line come to fruition in your involvement with it? Well, you know, th- this there was a time period where Michael wanted to create a musical, that he really wanted to put his stamp on it, that it that it's something that the accumulation of all the other great shows that he'd done, he just wanted to, and he was thinking a lot about his, his life as a dancer, mm-hmm. and I think he was at that uncomfortable place where, <clears throat> you know, when you're a director, you, everybody's asking you questions, you have to, mm-hmm. and, and you're not in your, you know, the happiest moment in his life, I think, as he expressed it, was when he was dancing in the chorus, and he was doing those eight shows a week, yeah. and all of his dreams, his future was ahead of him. Mm-hmm. He remembers that as being a really exciting, happy, and he wanted to revisit it in a way. So before that, though, you know, it was like three years where we were having conversations on and off. Um, and New York was going through a very difficult time, and he commissioned at one point... Um, a writer to do a backstage uh, uh, musical. Yeah. Because he had me in mind. You know, he said, well, there's a part in it for you. And I went, oh, good. Well, hurry up because I'm 30. <laughs> and I wanted, you know, I wanted to be able right. to do it. 
Um, we would joke that way about it. And then he had he would show me from time to time ideas about using a, the bare stage for dancers to come in and all these little things would... Uh, and then, of course, the night when he... After he met um, Miss Sean and Tony... Mm-hmm. Just to talk about what they they had in mind, they went to Michael really, and then he kind of combined all of this stuff that spent that he was going through, with what they were going through, and everybody was kind of in need to be creative and to yeah. work, and so that's when we did the first. Yeah. Um, Wayne taught Wayne Salento taught yeah. the class yeah. late at night, and so then we went us. in and and sat down and you know with the reel to reel thing and the big chugger. Bad red wine. <laughs> and we just went around, and, and uh, Michael used himself as an example. The first three questions are pretty much the questions that Zach starts with, you know, in the show. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what Michael said. You yeah. know, go around, say your name, where you're born, and why, you, why you're dancing. What made him such a great director? Why did you like going into a room with him? Um, well, it, he was different as a choreographer in a way, but as a director, uh, you know, because when I, he directed um, Twigs he did twi- with yeah. Seda Thompson, you know, and that was important to him to be, you know, like Jerome Robbins, because mm. Jerome Robbins did that. And um, and I said, how did you, how did you know it to, to uh, your auditions? He goes, it's so simple. I just go with who's the best. <laughs> I went, well, that's clever. That's a good one. Yeah. It's novel. So what that says, though, is that everybody has their job to do. Yeah. And that's a, a, you know, Michael's family or his, you know, the people he worked with, he had a lot of respect and he loved the collaboration because he knew that's how things get done. Mm -hmm. That's that's how visions are, are made and dreams are met, you know, with that. And I just thought it's it's not that simple, but mm-hmm. it takes someone who has that kind of, you know, faith or yes. in, talent in just seeing talent. Yeah. 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 What do you look for out of a director? For you, what is the ideal director-actor collaboration? Oh gosh, I uh, well, I love John Doyle. I mean, I, there are so many good directors, and most directors uh, I've been lucky because they. Um, I've had a couple, well, I shouldn't say that, but yeah, I have. But most good directors, they create a safe place. Mm -hmm. And as an actor, your job is to bring your interpretation. But a director must um, create an atmosphere where everyone's on the same page as Mm -hmm. well. So we're all doing the same story. Um, And then you bring, and and a good director will take your ideas and be inspired by the work that everyone brings in. and and it's it's a it's a, I love John Doyle's the being in the room as they say yeah um, because it's most recent you know for a Broadway show when I uh, did the visit yes well I didn't do it but I was but, yeah. there yeah. every day oh, yeah. um, to to get back even though it's a it's art it's commercial it's Broadway and you have to you know you have you have to produce and yes. deliver mm-hmm. and to have that. Uh, creation, the creation going on and, and changing, and to see the, uh, Roger Reese get more into the character and bring certain things, and Cheetah, you know, changing mm-hmm. certain elements. I mean, it was just so great, and a, and a great director like John can can do that. I mean, Hal was wonderful because they 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 want you to. I mean, they want you to to bring yeah, it. You right. know. They hired you for a reason. That's right. Solves right. their yeah. problem that's too. Right. Yeah, they yeah. want you to. So I guess I like directors who leave you alone. Yeah, that's good. Well, you know the the truth is when I talked to Marsha Milgram Dodge, you know, we, she just did our uh, she directed our our concert mm. with Andre McCardle, and um, she said when when a because we talked about this and, and I said. You know, when the director, I used to say to Michael, I used to drive him crazy saying, what are, what, give me some notes. I always wanted to as a dancer. It's never good enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I give me some notes. He goes, I have no notes. And finally he got mad. I think and he said, okay, I have a note. I go, what is it? What is it? You're working too hard. And that was a good note. Yeah, that's a good note. Yeah. That's a good note. But she said, uh, most directors leave the actors alone. When they're doing, they're just doing their work. And yeah. that's fine. Yeah, you you sure. pay attention you get on people who aren't really maybe rising to the occasion or something. Yeah. But but if they leave you alone, it's because you're okay. You're yeah. 
When you started doing a chorus line at the public, were you aware in the rehearsal process that, oh, this, is, this might turn into something quite fabulous? Oh, yeah. I felt that, I felt that not always in yeah. the beginning, but the first workshop was kind of a, I thought it was, it was great to be that creative. But I thought, it's not, we can't, we're certainly not ready. This right. is like, a, we called it the Towering Inferno, actually. <laughs> you know, people were just like, this is before Michael realized that he had to make it um, growing up in the line. In other words, each, that's when he discovered that, because we were all talking about our childhood yeah. dilemma, and we were all competing with who had the worst childhood, it seemed, because... Right. Yeah. We knew that they were writing, you know, the, the, our stories, so we wanted to make them interesting. Yes, sure. <laughs> uh, but but after the when Marvin Hamlish and Ed Kleban came in, um, and James Kirkwood especially, that's when it all kind of when at the ballet was the first song that we heard as a company, and that's when I knew, if not a commercial success, it would certainly be an artistic yeah. success because that number was like the heartbeat of what it is to be a dancer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I went, that really... Spoke true. And yeah. you and you said uh, a, a majority of that was your life story, correct? Or a portion of Ethel oh, yeah. was your life story? Yeah. So, See, this, uh, the, the, the characters became a composite mm -hmm. of... Uh, because a lot sure. of people um, had the same experiences, believe it or not, or the oh, same... Of course, yeah. Certainly the same feelings, so... Right. For all of those that'll get to play the role of Cassie at some point, what advice... Do you you have to pass on about who she is? Oh, I just I first of all I say my apologies. That number is really long. <laughs> don't take care of yourself. Care Get of a yourself. lot of massages. Um, I I don't know. I, I I love it when I see the actor bring her own mm -hmm. point of view with the with the character. The character is, uh, I think, one technical thing. Uh, yeah. I, it, it I've seen it where. The the end of the scene is played in the beginning too often. Mm. And if you get that defensive in the beginning of that scene when you're finally mm -hmm. able to talk to your ex, he's gonna he can kick you out at any second. Exactly. And yeah. if you if you start being defensive and it becomes tedious the scene. And I think it's um I think that moment to mo moment to moment play that uh, the discovery, mm -hmm. the discovery is in the scene as as different levels of what he's really saying. Yeah. It kind of I remember feeling that it's hard for me to grasp what he's really doing, and then as I get more and more that he's saying no, it it evolves, and then the dance happens, the song. So everything is that seamlessness. It's justified by the growth of your emotion. Yes. And then when you go into the dance, which is, you know, even more heightened, um, it's like, uh, I, to any Cassie that I've worked with, I say it's like being this person who was fragmented. And, she's, and, you, and all, that's why the choreography is very stark and angular at first, because she's, over, you know, she's overdoing it to try to, you know, willfully mm -hmm, do it, yeah. and then she becomes more of a whole. She finds the joy in the circle step, mm -hmm. and then she finds more, a more complete, solid, confident person at the end. She's willing to face him, mm -hmm. face off with yeah. him, and yeah. say, "I'll take Horus if you'll take me," mm -hmm. and challenge him to be bigger person, maybe, or grow from this, or give me a second chance. When Cassie didn't get that second chance a couple times. Yeah. It was really depressing, and that's. I'm talking a lot. You got to stop. No, this is <laughs> no, this is. And that's when Marsha Mason, who was married to Neil Simon at that time, was able to come and be another voice with Michael to say, "I followed that character's through line, and and if she doesn't get the job, nobody wins." That's right. Because mm -hmm. nobody learns anything. And Zach, you know, because he he just you know she's really upending his whole yeah. you know rehearsal. I mean his audition. Yeah. So that was a really good thing. So it's very exciting to be part of something where you see these little but big changes yeah. happen that make all the difference between success and failure. Yeah. That dance, the music in the mirror dance, how how did you guys I mean did you collaborate on the yeah. choreography? I mean did he yeah. like cuz he knew And the music. The I mean we so. were in his living room. Marvin was at the piano, Bobby Thomas who was, you know, 
on drums and always mm. at Michael's rehearsals. Um, you know, I would say, well, what about a 4-4? Four, four? I was going, in my mind, I, I, I wanted to take it to different places mm-hmm. emotionally. So we would just like, what about a 4-4? Four, four? What about slowing it, doing a slow section here? And then, yeah. and I don't know whether it just was all, and then Marvin, would, who was brilliant, mm-hmm. would be sitting at the piano kind of, you know, musically doing what we were just throwing out there. And that was a beginning, you know, that was just a, a beginning to get a shape. Right. Yeah. And then as we worked on it, it wasn't dancing being so ab- abstract. Mm-hmm. You know, you work in di- different vocabulary, and there would be a, a more a yearning section, the slow section, where she discovers her body, that the feelings come mm-hmm. back into her after the first part being very stark. Mm-hmm. And then everything soft, softens in the three elements that I started thinking of was the line, the mirror, the reflection, am I still here, am mm-hmm. I invisible? All those metaphor things that, that you have in a, in a dance number, and him, so there were three points, mm-hmm. and that's something I always just tell um, the, the Cassies to just keep that in mind as an mm-hmm. actress, and it's like, keep discovering as you go, and let it build, and so we have a beginning, a middle, and an end, which is just, Sounds very simple, but it's it's everything. It's everything. Yeah, Yeah. what we do: dancing, singing, and acting. Yeah, all of it. It transfers. It transfers to Broadway, and it's this massive phenomenon. What's it like to? That's a transfer that was good uh, from an off-Broadway show. (laughs) Yeah, where 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 the musicians Mm -hmm. were in the wings. You know, there was no pit. So, can you imagine those first audiences who didn't know? They didn't know what they were seeing. It was never advertised. And they, you hear the piano, and then they turn around and hear this orchestra coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So it had a bigger scope than what it looked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Broadway uh, transfer, everyone loves to go, was it going to transfer? Yeah. Gonna... Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it did very well. It was a great um, time mm-hmm. to have... It was the first and only opening I've had where I had no nerves, because yeah. it was, it's like the, we were all just celebrating it. Yeah, it, we, we knew we were you know, that we had a good show for the audience and the audience had seen it already, you know, yeah. several times. Approval. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. Every, it was a, a great celebration, I think, yeah. you know. And then what was it like? To, I mean, you're walking down the street and there's your face on a national magazine and there you are on television. How yeah. do you, how do it you was keep... hard. It was hard because my father just died yeah. and all those things that you go through in life. Um, but no, I was I, I, I had enough experience by this time to know that it doesn't happen all that often. Mm-hmm. So you have to just go with it and be there as much as you can um, to receive a, a Tony Award. I, I remember that's one of the things I kept thinking, just try to be here in the moment so you can appreciate it because it might never happen mm-hmm. again and just be there so you yeah. can take something yeah. in, you mm-hmm. know. And I knew it was just, and, and Michael was... Because he wasn't doing the show, I remember we were at Sardi's um, celebrating, a group of us, and he said, I think he was already worrying about his next project. What do I do now? Yeah. This was the show that he wanted to deliver, a show for dancers, his Valentine, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said, don't ever compete with this show. It has a life all its own. It's up there. Don't ever compete. And I went... Well, all right, that's, you know, yeah. I won't. <laughs> but I didn't know what he was talking about. I'm a little slow with these things. Um, but I do now because uh, it does. He was starting to feel how hard it was for him to, Sure. what do I do now? Yeah. yeah. How do you? Where do I go from here? You can't top that because that was already so brilliant. So then well, it's also the show does have a life of its own. Yeah. You know, he did something quite more than he even realized. Nobody knew in the, in those workshops, and especially when we started performing it, even we knew it would be an artistic success. I think generally, mm-hmm. but no one knew if it would it, how far-reaching it could right. be. Yeah. So he had a sense of it anyway. Yeah. What a surprise. Yeah. Uh, listeners, please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting Routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about a chorus line, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Robert Schneider, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Bye-bye. 
every little step she takes. One thrilling combination, every move that she makes. One smile and suddenly nobody else. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 